You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 54. And today we're asking the question, do safety communication campaigns reduce injuries? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? David, a lot of safety activity is geared around changing the way people behave. Uh, we've talked about it in a few different episodes. Most notably on episode 22, we talked about changing attitudes in order to change behavior. I think it might even have been episode one when we talked generally about behavior change campaigns. So in this episode, we're going to come back to that, looking at another way that we try to change people's behavior at work, which is specifically about safety communication campaigns. So that's really what our question is about, is about how we use safety. Sometimes they're called safety promotion and what sort of effect that has within an organization. So Drew, we have these campaigns in all of our organizations. I think all of our listeners would have had various forms of safety communication campaigns daily, weekly in our organization, safety months, uh, safety days. So let's define a little bit more about what we mean and what we don't mean when we talk about um, safety communication campaigns. The most typical example I can think of is you're visiting a company and you go into the bathroom and up on the wall, there is a poster of some sort, or it's on the door of the cubicle, reminding you about safety. So it's very clearly just about communication. It doesn't have to be a poster. It could be broadcast communications, uh, video clips, stuff on a website, or even a podcast. But it's, it's a verbal or written message from the organization to people. It doesn't have other, fact, other factors built into it. And some of these other factors... Drew could be like, um, we're not talking about communicating um, requirements for specific tasks like JSAs, procedures, risk assessments. Um, we're not sort of talking to people about a broader program, like an implementation of a, of a broader program. And we're not sort of talking about reporting or sharing incidents and safety alerts and things like that. We're talking, like you said, just you know either general or specific safety messaging that is just about the communication. Yeah. So this could range anything from just reminding people that safety is important or it could be asking them to do something specific. Remember to wear a helmet, remember to wear your shoes, uh, don't fall over, don't stick your hands in the machinery at work. I'm being a little bit glib. These things really do vary a lot in both their messaging and in their effectiveness. Some of the fairly strong examples people might be familiar with is using broadcast TV to talk about drink driving. But the important thing here is that very often drink driving TV ads are combined with an enforcement campaign. So it's not just we're running a TV ad, but we're also reminding you that we're currently heightening our enforcement activity or we've doubled the fines this weekend. What we're looking at in this episode is the communication alone detached from other things. So how much can we change safety just by communicating rather than by communicating and enforcing? Yeah, and so Drew, safety communication campaigns, I think they appeal to managers and safety professionals because they're sort of relatively easy to implement. They, you can reach a high number of people with a consistent message. You can demonstrate some visible action from the organization. It gives you a sense of doing something. And I think organizations feel really good about their safety communication campaigns. But here's a sentence from the paper that we're going to introduce shortly for today. And a quote is that before any positive change can be expected in the number or the seriousness of accidents, 
the campaign material has to be seen and be understood and be acted upon. So Drew, I really like this um, example because this is an older paper like we'll talk about, but we talk a lot on this podcast about how far removed the safety work might be from the safety of work, how many steps are there in between. And you know this relationship is really important. And I just like the way that they'd actually stepped out this relationship between the communication campaign itself and then through to whether or not the seriousness or frequency of injuries were going to change. David, I think this is one of those areas where it's really important to spell out those steps because we can fall into the trap of assuming that something is effective because it's accomplished one of those steps. A number of times I've been involved in the periphery of campaigns around some really important issues like workplace violence. And people are measuring the effectiveness of their campaign by the number of likes that the page has got on Facebook or on LinkedIn. Now, that is a valid measure, but it's a measure of how many people have seen the campaign material. Sometimes you might see people go a step further and they do a survey or something like that. So that's checking that the campaign material has been understood. But none of that really tells you whether the thing that you're trying to change has changed. And that's why you need to sort of spell out these steps. How many people have seen it? How many people have understood it? Then how many people have acted upon it? And you have to assume that it goes down each of those steps. That you know, only a certain proportion of people who've seen it understand it, only a certain people who understand it act upon it. Yeah, now regular listeners will probably um, sound a little bit like a broken record, but you know sometimes we just don't think about this enough in our organisations. We just, here's a great communication campaign, it's good to do for safety, and with this automatic assumption or expectation that it's going to have an impact on the safety of work and and so on. And But we're going to get into that today, which is, which is going to be really good. And there's a few background studies that were in the paper that we're going to talk about. But I think it's fair to say that workplace safety campaigns have been around probably forever that we've been interested in safety, but there is very little research on their impact and their effectiveness. There's, there's some broad stuff that we'll talk about, but most of the specific studies that were mentioned were sort of sort of outside the workplace. I just want to talk briefly about two, Drew, if that's okay, because I think it just helps set the context. Yeah, go, go for it, David. And yeah, these things are really old. I, I found stickers from safety campaigns dating back to 1910, that apart from the poor production values really look like they could have been produced today. Yeah, there's a lot of communication stuff that's sort of littered through Heinrich's work through the 30s and 40s that I was I was reading when we had Carsten Bush on the podcast um, a while ago. So so these things have been around forever. And look, in the early 70s, when mandatory seatbelts came in, in in some parts of the world, there was a lot of mass media to try and establish this, you know, safe behavior change. And what the study, you know, a large study that was done in and around that time in 1974 sort of found that um, the percentage of drivers who'd seen the advertising campaign on TV basically wore their seatbelt just as much as people who'd never seen the campaign. So like you said earlier, Drew, sometimes these things are joined up with enforcement, but just with the campaign alone, really had no impact at all. So this is this thing between, I might see it, but I might not do anything about the fact that I've seen it. And then there was another study um, in the 80s that looked at the prevalence of accidents of children in homes. And they had these two groups of families and they gave one group just saw the advertisements on TV and another group, they saw the advertisements and they got someone specifically visiting their home and pointing out to them about what could be done to reduce incidents in the home. And maybe unsurprisingly drew like in 60% of the cases where someone physically attended the home and talked through with the family about their situation, things were changed in the house to reduce the risk of incidents. And without that visit, it was something like 9% of people change something in their house. So we've got this situation, Drew, where it's probably fair to say that this body of research around 
communication campaign says that the result's going to be somewhere between zero and 10% of people who actually do something differently. Is this kind of consistent with how you see the literature? Yeah, if the answer really was nine or 10%, we shouldn't underestimate that that is a genuinely real amount of change. If we could pick fatalities in our organization and say, we're going to reduce the chance of those fatalities by 10%, that would definitely be something that is worth doing. The, the trouble is that the, this is, there's fairly weak evidence for these effects. And when you're talking about weak evidence for a change that could be as low as zero or as high as 10%, you've got to assume that any given campaign could be down at that zero end without good evidence otherwise. It's also worth pointing out that most of this research is conducted on very large-scale behaviours, which are things that people generally agree are bad behaviours. So you know, many of the campaigns that are most effective and that have been studied are to do with things like drink driving or cigarette smoking, um, where they're behaviours that people probably... So sh well, I guess in the case of um, drink driving, a lot of the purpose of the campaign was to change the social acceptability of the behaviour. Um, and they were quite effective in doing that. But we don't have that sort of level of evidence when it comes to single workplace level interventions. Andrew, before we get into the into the study then, because um, we picked this one because it was workplace-based, the broader communication literature, and I suppose safety communication literature, sort of suggests a set of criteria that what might make an effective campaign. And maybe you could just introduce that now because it's kind of was used as the basis for the design of the study that we're we're going to talk about today. So you know, without without before we talk about the paper, what what should people have in their mind about what are the things that might make a communication campaign more successful? Uh, so this is a fantastic list because it comes out of some of that same literature that says that campaigns generally aren't effective. So you see a number of these different papers that say your campaign's probably not going to work, but this is what will give it its best chance of working. And each one of these things has multiple studies that points directly to the particular factor. So the first one is that it needs to have a clear objective. So you can't just have like safety first or safety is your responsibility or please care. Communication campaigns work best when they're asking for something specific. The second one is the specific thing you ask for has to be something that is positive and that people believe that they can do. So it's really easy for people to understand and take the action. Um, that's sometimes phrased as, the campaign should directly tell people what you are asking them to do. So you don't put it negatively. You don't say, you know, here's a picture of someone who put their hand in the machine. Don't be like them. You say, I would like you to ensure that your hands are on the surface away from the machine or uh, put your gloves on before using the machine. A positive action you would like people to follow. Third one is attract attention. So you know, the material should actually draw your eye to it and get people to look at it. And along with that is sometimes the idea that there are optimal rates at which you should change the material. It won't attract attention if it is put too long with exactly the same stuff. So it is worth keeping the same message, but changing the presentation. It should be placed at the crucial point of action. I particularly love that one. Every time I go into an organization and I see this one at the bathroom, I think, okay, what is the crucial point of safety that you want me to do while I'm here? Because unless it's washing my hands, I'm really not sure why you're telling me at this particular point in my life. Um, and the final one is message reinforcement. And particularly in this paper, they point to feedback of results. So tell people how it is working um, helps people to uh, move that behavior change. And so all of those are things that they 
looked at and followed in the study we're going to look at today. So let's introduce the study now, Drew. The title of the paper is The Effects of an Informational Safety Campaign in the Shipbuilding Industry. Now, it was published in the Journal of Occupational Accidents in 1989. So Drew, this might be one of the oldest research papers that we've looked at on the podcast, being from 30 years ago. And originally, when I was looking around this sort of communication and slogans piece, because um, a regular listener, Adam, had kind of reached out and said, hey, have you got anything on slogans or this? I, I had a bit of a look and I thought, well, let's go for the road safety campaign research because about traffic accidents, because there's lots of it. There's lots of large scale meta-analytic studies. There's lots of recent studies and flicked it across to you, um, Drew, and said, not a bad idea, but how about this paper? And I just want to know kind of like, why did you, why do you want to push to the side all of that well-funded current research and make me run through a 1989 paper? David, it was because this is one of my favorite papers and I wanted a chance to talk about it. And there are some things I really love about it. First one is we're not talking analogies here. Too often when we talk about behavior change, we've had to resort to things outside workplace safety where the high quality research has been done. And I just wanted to demonstrate to our listeners that this can happen in the workplace. It doesn't have to be, we see this big study done in road safety. So we're going to use the results of that and sort of interpret it for hand injuries at work. This is specifically about safety in a single workplace. This is something that any of our listeners could do if they wanted to do this study. The second thing is I love the simple design that is still really quite robust in terms of having multiple intervention groups, having controls, having really sound measurement that they were building into it. And the third one is I just love the honesty. They set out doing this sincerely believing that they were going to prove that it would work. And to a large extent, they did prove a number of the things that they were hoping for, but they missed out on that one final measure. And they didn't try to hide it at all. They just frankly reported all the results as they went along. And that sort of clarity and honesty is, I think, what we need to be able to genuinely improve safety. And the final one is 1989 paper. No one else has done something better since. (laughs) And I think that is an important takeaway message as well, is if they could do it back then, Don't tell us you can't do workplace experiments to improve safety. Don't go putting up those damn posters in the bathroom unless you're willing to go through this sort of work. Yeah, I think this is a good good litmus test for people when they look at what was involved in this sort of a study. It'd be good if we had more research like this that would help us um, point our resources in our organisation. So the authors were um, Kaya Sorella, uh, Juhar Sari and Miko Altonen. And at the time, they were all, and apologies for the Finnish name pronunciation, but at the time, they were all part of the Institute of Occupational Health and Safety um, just outside Helsinki in Finland. And so there's a fair bit of methods, Drew, and we'll, we'll, we'll go into, I think, as much detail as it, as it helps, because I, I like you, when I, I, hadn't, I actually hadn't read this paper before, and when I went through it, I was like, gee, this is, this, is, um, this is a really interesting and good piece of work. So look, they conducted their research in the shipbuilding industry, okay, because it had a higher average number of accidents than than general industry, but it also offered them some interesting opportunities to control for other potential variables in the study. So what they took is they took a whole bunch of workers and supervisors who worked for this one large shipbuilding company that employed, you know, three and a half thousand people. And they had these contracts to build multiple ships. So if people are familiar with like, it might be a production run of cars, they, they were building multiple tankers and multiple ferries. So what they were able to do was actually get a specific construction process or or period of time on one tanker and run an intervention. And then when they built tanker number two, they could then do use that as a control. 
So similar work activity, similar environment, similar capability of people, similar numbers of people, similar timeframes, and that sort of just limits those other sort of confounding variables when you're actually trying to isolate out some changes. Andrew, in total, like 1,900 people or so were involved in this study. There was 300 workers on each of the tankers, let's call them tanker one and tanker two, and 650 each on each of the ferries, um, ferry one and two. So this was a, I think this was a somewhat unique opportunity to have these sort of almost identical work environments between the intervention and the control group. And these, the study duration was like between five and eight months for each of these construction periods. So there was a lot of data and, and I mean, this, even though it was in one organization, there was, um, there was quite a lot that went into it. They also did some thinking about what were the factors that could confound the study. And so they thought about pretty much most of the things you might think about. So you might think, okay, over this length of time, the weather's going to change. But when you do it over a long enough period like this, you get to see all types of weather during the study. You might think, well, okay, the workers are getting more experienced. They're getting better as they go along. And that's what the control groups help with. Um, and they actually even checked historically whether when they were building three ships, whether people had fewer injuries building the third ship. And it seems to be that, no, there isn't any sort of pattern like that that we need to worry about. So some simple basic checks just to see that they're doing a fair test of the ideas. And then the rest of it is just about what the idea was. So they wanted to follow those criteria we set out for effective communication campaigns. They got a group of people within the organisation together, uh, generated 35 slogans. Um, and each of these slogans was like a specific instruction. Things like, you know, only carry away as much material as you need today. Or find out where the exits are. A couple of the slogans were a little bit more vague, like, you know, you can affect everybody's safety. Um, but most of them followed that rule of giving people an instru specific instruction to follow. So, Drew, they had these 35 slogans, which they come up with, the internal people, just to try to, to try to direct specific action at specific parts of the ship or during specific processes like work sites and gangways or specific slogans to identify and eliminate certain common hazards and you know, a slogan to make sure that work started safely and, you know, these slogans around removing risks. So all these things that you'd think, okay, well, if this message is getting through, then things are going to change. Risks are going to be reduced. Work's only going to start when it's safe. And and so, like you said, Drew, they set this up thinking, I assume that the researchers went into this thinking, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to, we're going to really um, make a big impact here. And so what they did basically on the, in the tank, on the tanker, the slogans were handwritten on some plain yellow cardboard, you know, about half a meter by half a meter in size. So, you know, this is how simple this, um, this, I suppose today, like you talked about production value earlier, Drew, you know, running an experiment by the safety person, just writing in, in pen on a piece of cardboard and hanging it up. But this is because this was sort of similar to the way that other signage was actually put up during the construction period. So it was signage that um, the work groups were used, were familiar and they were used to seeing. And then the same on the on the ferry, they they did printed signs because that was similar to what um what it was done there. And so how they ran this study, Drew, is um on the in the tanker, in the first week, they basically put up 101 slogan signboards with the 35 different slogans and they hung them all over the tanker in the areas where they wanted that message to be actually sort of seen and acted on by the people. They put them up and then they took them down sort of after the week, they sort of took them down for a week. And then after two weeks, they sort of put them back up and then they took them down. And so they were sort of cycling these these slogans. So they'd be in the workplace, you know, for one week and then they wouldn't be there the next week. And they just sort of kept cycling it. And then they had some longer periods of duration with the signs up and then some smaller periods 
then they sort of put 56 up then 57 up so they're trying to make the i suppose the the environment a little bit dynamic but in the end basically this the slogans were up for about 10 percent of the total time so it wasn't there all the time but it was it was it was there for about 10 percent and there was a slightly different design for the ferries where they um they shortened down the number of the slogans and they came up with a few extra ones and then they put them up for much longer periods of time so they put them up for like three or four weeks with only four or five slogans so they were trying to get longer duration much more targeted messaging um, into the ferries and again that could also give them the opportunity to look at some variability between what might be different strategies for communicating um, in the workplace not just whether the communication makes a difference. Um, so, David, let's talk a little bit about what the outcome is from the study. Ultimately, of course, what they're interested in is changing the incident rates of injuries on board the... So, not on board, as they're constructing the ships. There's a lot of stuff until we get to that point. So, the first one is that they interviewed a lot of people about what they'd noticed about the signs and what they thought about the signs and whether they thought the signs had been effective. So, we're talking 87 out of 300 people interviewed on the tanker, 57 out of 650 on the ferry. So quite a large proportion, but also quite large numbers. And some of these people had worked on both um, because this is the same continuous workforce. So they asked them questions like, you know, how many of the slogans could they remember? And your typical respondents could remember three to four of the slogans. That's really quite, I thought, David, a low number, particularly since they didn't have to get it right word for word. They just had to basically remember the message. Yeah, look, and I think over five or eight months and cycling all of these things, having 100, 100 signboards up around 35 different slogans and then asking people, which of these things can you recall? And just like you said, not word for word, but just the general vibe of the slogans and the average being three or four means that, again, it's an average, Drew. So I assume there's some people who might have been able to list 15 or 20 of these things, which means there's also a lot of people on averages who you know, could list zero or one. So even that three or four is a, I don't think we, I don't think the study reported the range there, but I think that would be sort of fascinating. Yeah. And it's interesting that some of them, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Pointless, sort of try, try to guess which slogans people have given the most and you get a prize if you spot the slogan that no one remembered. Um, but the pointless answers here were, you can affect everybody's safety. No one remembered that one. And know the rules, refresh your memory, read your manual. No one remembered that one. But even though they had this sort of low recall rate, people were very positive about the program. So you ask people both, did you like it and did you think it was effective? And people said, yes. So there was a strong perception that this was good for safety. Andrew, one of the things they also did um, in the method, which we haven't mentioned yet, was they did these housekeeping reviews. So they had health and safety representatives go around the workplace and in the tanker, for example, give a score on a, on a scale of four to 10 about how what the rating of the housekeeping was and do these routinely all the way through the study. And this was also, again, this, this step before injuries because they're also interested to go, hey, look, even if injuries move around a lot, and we've talked a lot about the usefulness of injury rates and the randomness of injury rates, but housekeeping, a lot of the specific instructions were like, don't leave hoses and things lying around. Don't you know do this, do this, do this, do this. And so I think they were hoping that they could... Um, they could see a housekeeping change. And really in terms of those housekeeping reviews, people walking around all the time, only very modest changes were identified in the intervention ship. So in the tanker, basically the score went from six to an eight during the first four weeks, but then basically decreased back to the starting point during the intervention period, like with the signs still up 
And then in the ferry, ferry, the scores changed even less in two areas and was totally unchanged in a third area um, of that particular construct vessel. So, so you're saying even with, with hundreds of signs around the place telling people specifically what you wanted them to do, regardless of what the injury rates show, when we get to it, the, it actually, the claim that you could make that it changed behaviour is very, um, is almost sort of gone, I suppose. So let's get to the bottom line of what effect this had on incident rates. I feel a little bit hypocritical, David, because you, you and I have both been fairly critical of incident rates. And I think in the coming weeks, we've got a couple of studies we're going to look at that talk specifically about some of the reasons why. But yeah, we, we've got to use what the studies use. And lots of safety studies use incident rates as their final measure. Um, and that's the case in this study. So it's good that they didn't just use incident rates. We've got this pattern that we can see, you know, first they measure how people saw the message, how much they recall of the message, which is a good test of understanding, how much it's changed the basic behavior tested by the housekeeping observations. And then the final step, whether that changes the injuries. Um, and if we saw a sort of consistent pattern across those things, that'd give us a good confidence if they found that there was an improvement in the injury rate. But David, what did the injury rate show? So look, I think in the end, um... The injury rates were sort of nothing to see here, and they did lots of work with injury rates. They they went back in time years, and they they looked at you know all these different variations in sequencing of the vessel construction and weather and all these things you spoke about, and, and they they only looked at injuries where there was three days off work because this is what the workers' compensation system in Finland you know had had a lot of extra reporting around, and they feared I suppose the inconsistency in reporting of minor incidents would would make would sort of um, confound their data so look i mean that basically they found nothing no 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 impact no change in the tanker the intervention there was um in the tanker with all of the signage there was a slightly um higher number of injuries than in the tanker without the signage but the tanker without the signage has slightly more severe but nothing statistically significant in any of those numbers and in the ferry the situation was actually the opposite there were slightly fewer accidents in the intervention ferry but they were more severe but none of there was no statistical significance in any direction of the communication campaigns and the injuries that occurred. So I think, Drew, if I summarise the findings of, of this study before we get on to practical takeaways, we'd say the campaign was received well. People said, you know, people weren't upset with signs being hung up in their workplace, you know, saying that safety is important. Specific slogans are recalled best, but at the end of the day, people could recall very few slogans um, through the interviews. It made a minor to no improvement to working conditions, you know, only one very minor improvement in, in one part of the study. And the campaign appeared to be entirely to have no impact in, in preventing injuries. And again, Drew, we're talking about more than two years of study with um, months and months and months of intervention in the workplace. So, David, I should point out here that this is one of several similar studies that were conducted around the same time in the same part of the world in the shipbuilding industry. I'm aware of another study that involved specifically a behavior around the use of cranes and another study that was also fairly similar to this one, but had a slightly positive result. Um, so did find some behavior change. So I don't want people to take away the message that communication campaigns flat out don't work. The, the sort of general trend of evidence is that they have a small positive effect but that the evidence for that effect is also fairly weak. And sort of the closer you look at it, the more likely it is to evaporate and you discover that what you're seeing is people responding positively to the campaign, 
without that positive response leading on to changes in action, changes in safety. Andrew, I think I, I, I tried to also think about where I where I sat personally on this or, or what my initial assumptions were, because I, I was thinking even if even if we think about the safety of work model and social safety about safety being important, you know, I was wondering with if this fact that safety, the campaign was being received well on these vessels and people might have been talking a little bit more about safety, it might have given permission for people to ask for more things to do with safety or do stuff. But then at the end, I was also going, yeah, but then over eight month period, we probably might have seen some of those indirect effects start to show up. So I, I, I sort of walked away now still wondering, I suppose I wouldn't tell an organization to stop communicating about safety, but it would be, I think I personally need to give quite a lot of thought into how I feel about safety communication um, and, and, and what I think it does, you know, and what role it does play. And again, I don't think the answer is no communication, but I think it sends me back to the drawing board anyway. So David, a couple of thoughts there. The first one is, I think that initial response you had is the same response a lot of people will have if you challenge the effectiveness of safety communication. They'll say, okay, yeah, fine, we couldn't measure a direct effect on injuries, but injuries are a terrible measure anyway. There could well be some more diffuse, more long-term effect here on the climate that our measurements just aren't capturing, and that is more than just a simple blunt change in behaviour leading to safety. And I think that is a perfectly valid argument to make. I think it is a perfectly reasonable supposition. I think it is entirely theoretically sound. But the second thought is that if that's the way you think it works, then do a study that measures that instead. Don't use that as an argument for why we're doing a study that's supposed to be changing behavior and hasn't changed behavior. If we think that the way to improve safety isn't to change specific behaviors, it's to improve the climate and thereby make things safer, then do a study that measures that and show that effect. You can do the same designer study just with slightly different measurements and find that effect. Um, it's very frustrating when people get a negative result and want to explain that away with an alternate hypothesis about how safety works. If you've got that alternate hypothesis, then design a study around the alternate hypothesis instead. In terms of evidence base, we just can talk about what we've got evidence for. And this one was testing that direct one that we can change people's frontline behavior with reminders right at the point of action, which really is a plausible theory. You know, it does make sense that you remind people just before they do something, maybe they'll do the right thing. Um, we just didn't see that in this study. And I think we're doing it. I think we're still waiting to do an episode on where we, we will do an episode on take fives once um, a publishing process is finished for a paper. But, um, but I think that's exactly what we're still doing now. I mean, what we're doing now is not much different to these posters in 1989, whether it's asking someone to go through a set of um, critical controls on a tablet before they start a job, you know, we're giving them a specific piece of information sort of just prior or, or, or in the point of action. And I think that, you know, whether it's a poster in 1989 in a ship construction or whether it's a, you know, like I said, a, a piece of information on a tablet at the start of a job, I still think we're seeing the same effects um, when it comes to the things that we're measuring. Which I find personally disappointing and frustrating, not from a criticising safety point of view, but because I think this is something that organisations genuinely struggle really hard with, is that we know that there are some things that are within our control as management and some things that are not in our control. We can change the environment when work happens sometimes. We can change the tools and equipment people have. We change the training that they have. We definitely can and should spend time on that. But then sometimes we find that work is happening in places where it's reliant on 
that frontline risk-related behavior. And it is so frustrating that all the tools we have available to us, none of them seem to be able to work. And so I, I fully understand the incentive to try to do anything, no matter how the evidence sort of stacks up. It makes so much sense that you know the person's about to pick up stuff. Can't we just tell them, don't pick up so much stuff? <laughs> the person's about to walk away from the workplace, leaving the hose out. Can't we just tell them, put the damn hose away? Why does that not work? Yeah, I, I can't fully explain why it doesn't, but the evidence says it doesn't. <laughs> But I mean, and, and I know we, we, we know the way that we all make decisions and, and all the different heuristics that and, and experiences that we have and hold and that go into our decision making. And it's, um, if it was that simple, then we wouldn't have a safety problem. Well, we wouldn't have that many problems in our organizations at all. I think if humans were that, um, were that simple. So, so do you look practical takeaways? Like, what should we practically take away from this episode? So, communication's come a long way since 1989. We've got internet, we've got the intranet, we've got email, we've got social media, we've got screens up in our offices, cycling, safety messages, um, stickers inside inside cars, and screensavers on laptops, and all this stuff in our organisation that's broadcasting out communication um, and and lots of safety communication all the time. What should we we practically be doing? So I think number one is we should remember that working on production values doesn't take away from the basic problem that we're trying to solve here, which is that this is not about getting people to like the communication. It's not about being able to draw people's eyes. It's not about management saying, yeah, that's really cool. Or that's really funny. Or that's, you know, really attention grabbing. It's about a simple chain that people need to see the communication they need to understand what it's asking them to do. They need to do the thing that it's asking them to do. And that needs to have a positive effect on safety. And most of the production value stuff just goes into that first one. It doesn't go into any of the rest of the chain. And I think, I think, um, I mean, my practical takeaway would be, you know, I'd be, I'd be almost taking inventory in if, if I was in an organization now, taking inventory of all of this communication that's going on in the safety space and 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 assessing it against that cri- the criteria that's in these papers that we've talked about. You know, is it specific? Is it at the point of action? And and some of the important things like is feedback being provided? You know, are we evaluating whether the the impact that what impact are we trying to have with that specific piece of communication and how are we evaluating and understanding if it's having that impact? And you know, I think there'll be a lot of communication in our organization around safety that um that would be a candidate for safety clutter. And uh, it, it may be one of those things, communication around safety and organization may be one of those things that less is more. And I don't necessarily mean less volume, but sort of just less less volume of messages, but getting really cleaner and crisper and targeted with the messages that are going out. So that's, let's make that our second takeaway, that in this study, they had 50 different messages and they thought all of those 50 were important, but your typical person could only recall three or four of them. So this is something that I encounter in my teaching and have to keep reminding myself. I've got a hundred things I want the students to know, a hundred things I have to remember to say. And sometimes I just got to thwack myself over the head and say, they're only going to remember three things from this course. The fact that I've remembered to fill up the gap between 48 and 50 hasn't helped what people have learned at all. It's much more important that they take away though a couple of messages than that they get everything I'm trying to tell them. Yeah, Drew, I mean, some of our listeners might know that I've been spending my lockdown time building a safety professional 12-week development course and it's got like 24 different modules in it and at the end of each one I've gone basically you know write these three things down on a post-it note and stick it on your computer for the duration of this module and if you you know if you read all the stuff and watch the lectures and do all the stuff 
that that's all fine and that's all good and helpful. But here's here's kind of three things because I think you know as it all boils down to, like you say, it's um it's just so much messaging and so much information that people have at their fingertips now. It's almost impossible to, I suppose, break all that down into what's actually the most important. Third one is the practicality and cost effectiveness of simple testing. This organisation saw an opportunity where they had the same task repeated. And the moment you see a task repeated, you should think, okay, opportunity to test out what works and doesn't work. Now, in this case, they weren't spending a lot on safety communication. These were handwritten signs. But organisations spend tens of thousands of dollars on getting ads produced or getting posters drawn or getting videos made nicely. And spend a little bit of that money on the comparative trial. Is money well spent? Yeah, and I think even just to extend that that takeaway there, Drew, is that this was all, I mean, there's researchers involved, but this is something that could be done internally as well. Like it was the internal people who sat down and came up with the slogans that were going to be relevant for for their workplace. It was the internal people that were doing the housekeeping inspections and collecting that data and feeding that data back to the workforce. And it could have easily been internal people that did the structured interviews, which was, well, what slogans can you recall? You don't have to be a fantastic interviewer to do a, a structured interview you know, with a set of questions. So, you know, there's a real challenge out there to our listeners and organizations in that, you know, the next thing you're doing for safety, you know, finding a way for you to actually know whether it's working or not. You shouldn't be there thinking, I don't need to go and test. I think if you're doing anything in your organization, you need to be thinking about how am I going to know whether it's making a difference. So David, invitations to our listeners, and I'd like to start off here taking advantage of the fact that we have listeners who talk to us on social media, so we don't need to rely on text. Send us a photo of your favorite safety communication or your most inappropriately positioned safety communication. I wish I could go back to a particular work site where there was this wonderful cardboard cutout of someone slipping over because they'd worn the wrong shoes. And I just imagine someone like walking into the cafeteria at lunchtime, seeing this cardboard cutout and thinking, well, six hours ago, I could have made a different decision about what shoes I wore to work. Too late now, I'm doomed to slip over. Yeah, I, I might have mentioned it before, Drew, but um, there was a stairwell at a place that I worked at for a very long time that had um, signs up in every single stairwell um, about always maintaining three points, three points of contact and one handrail down the side of the, the stairwell. And you you realize that to be able to do that, you've either got to not move your feet and hold onto the handrail <laughs> with one hand or make sure that you've got two hands on the handrail every time that you lift your foot to take a step. And I just let that sign sit there for, for years and years and never got mentioned. But there was literally these signs on every floor, on every level, inside every single stairwell um, because someone had gone, oh, this is this is what you do when you climb ladders. So we'll just put all these signs up in the stairwells. At least the sign had a clear positive message and was at the point of action, David. Absolutely right. Very good. And I don't know if I ever got any injuries on those stairwells, so um, maybe it worked. So Drew, I'd also like to know, other than you know a bit of a picture competition, do you do any evaluation of your safety communication campaign? So we're all going to happen. So every single one of our listeners is going to have some form of safety communication campaign in the business. I'd love to know how many of our listeners have got something that's, that, that they're doing to evaluate it and, and, and sharing with us, you know, how you're going about doing that. David, you're fond of sending people on your safety leadership course on um, weekly assignments. Yeah. Can we, can we set an assignment for our listeners to pick a campaign and just go and ask their marketing department, whoever produces it? what metrics they collect and yeah i'm going to take a bet that a lot of those are about likes and clicks and views rather than about effectiveness of the campaign yeah or not to not to challenge too much or just um go and ask someone who's in the audience of the of the campaign and yeah ask them what they think of it and or whether they've even seen it or um 
whether it does anything for them um, would be good too. But I think we're giving people too much homework now, so we might have to answer the question for this week, Drew. So the question for this week was, do safety communication campaigns reduce injuries? And the answer? Uh, you've got written on the notes, no. I'm going to weaken that slightly to a probably not. I was going to wonder how you were going to answer that because I was I, every time I answered that question when I was preparing the episode, I said, no, but, no, but. And every time I came up with a but, I couldn't justify the, what I was going to put next. So <laughs> I just left it as no. But um, but that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes or the results of your homework to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. <laughs>